Thanks to Inkle for supporting Future Hindsight. Inkle curates ad-free news from the world's best sources. Get 25% off your subscription at inkle.com hopeful. This episode is also sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating shows. We're enjoying it, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. A few weeks ago, I was on the phone with a guy I know down in Florida, and I honestly can't remember how it came up, but... He told me that he wasn't vaccinated against COVID, and he wasn't planning on it either. So I blurted out, get the jab. I don't want you to die of COVID. And he then mumbled something about being a recluse and not needing it, which is definitely not true. He's a contractor who meets with lots of clients. Either way, though, I didn't want to have an argument and was a little embarrassed by my outburst, so I just dropped it and I moved on. But it turns out I handled that all wrong, according to this week's guest. Lee McIntyre is a philosopher, and his new book is called How to Talk to a Science Denier. And he says talking to science deniers is actually a civic duty and that it's one of our responsibilities as part of the social contract. Lee has been writing and talking about the dangers of science denialism for 15 years. But for his new book, he decided to take more direct action. Uh, I decided that what I really needed to do was to go out and meet science deniers face to face. People had been asking me at my book talks, you know, what can I do to make more of a difference? And I advised them to speak with people with whom they disagreed. And then I thought, why am I not out there doing that more? So Lee went home, got on his laptop and Googled Flat Earth Convention. There was one coming up in Denver that November. He bought a ticket and booked his flight, and the science philosopher headed to the Flat Earth Convention. The first day, I kept my mouth shut, and I I didn't want to lie to them, but I just wanted to hear what they had to say. There were 650 people there. They seemed to be joyous, uh, uh, happy. It was a celebration, really, more than anything. And they greeted one another as friends. I mean... Flat earthers are persecuted in the world. Sometimes they don't let their views be known at work, at church, even amongst their family, because they pay a price for that. They not only believe that the earth was flat, they believe that Antarctica was not a continent. It was a mountain range spread out around the perimeter of the earth to keep the water from falling off, and that there was a dome over the top of the earth outside of which were the sun, moon, and stars, and that that made space travel impossible. So it meant that all of NASA was a fake. Every picture from space was faked, and that it was all a lie. It was all part of the same conspiracy. So at the convention, 
they were amongst friends. I mean, even if they'd never met, they were amongst people who understood what their experience was. Well, it was hard for me because I was not part of the community. And there were some strange moments, especially at the beginning, when you know it you could have conversations with them in which if flat earth didn't come up, it just was like any other conversation. But then that subject came up and it was different. And so it was quite shocking. So um, my first reaction is, that's hilarious. But actually, this is really serious, right? Antarctica as a mountain range to stop the water falling off the edge of a flat earth. It reminds me of ancient maps with dragons painted on the edges, which made me want to ask Lee about the history of science denialism. Like, how far back does it go? Science denial has arguably been around uh, as long as science. And, you know, certainly the examples that people think of are uh, Galileo. I just got back from a trip to Rome and I stood in the very spot where there's now a statue of Giordano Bruno, who was burned at the stake on that spot for believing that the stars were other suns and that there were other planets going around them. He lived in a denialist culture and you know, paid the ultimate price for his beliefs. So science denial has been around for a long time. Uh, again, I can't say that it's worse than it was in Galileo or, or Giordano or Bruno's time because we're not burning people at the stake. But the internet has made quite a difference in the last 20 years, knocking us out of our complacency as a culture to think that we were rational, that truth always mattered. Because what we've really run up against is the idea that we're in an information war, that this is propaganda. And what we're really facing is not that um, the entire culture is rejecting facts or the entire culture is rejecting truth, just that it can sometimes seem that way. And that's because of the amplification of disinformation. There really are not that many people out there who are creating the kind of disinformation that's at the root of modern science denial. But they have an enormous voice because they're on Twitter, they're on Facebook, and they're able to amplify their message out to millions of people who are their victims and who are just confused. But so practically, what is the problem with science denial in terms of our everyday lives, in addition to the pollution of the information sphere? Oh, it's, it's killing us, isn't it? I mean, the planet is in peril due to climate change. Our lives are in peril due to people who will not get vaccinated against a pandemic, who won't even wear masks. Science denial can kill, and I mean, it has killed in the past. One example is in South Africa a few decades ago, President Mbeke was an AZT denier. He thought that HIV could be cured or treated through garlic and lemon juice, and that AZT was part of a Western plot. 300,000 people died in South Africa. So we may laugh at flat earthers, and we may just walk away from them because what difference does it make? But I would argue that any sort of science denial contributes to that denialist culture that can get worse and worse till we're in the place that we are now. I mean, look at the things that we're worried about. They have to do with denial, even in our political sphere, whether the 2020 election was stolen, what to make of the assault on the U.S. Capitol. If we don't do something about science denial, which we haven't for quite some time, things are only going to get worse. Right. So let's go back a step. If science denial is so dangerous, 
How do we form these beliefs to begin with? Where do they come from? It, it's a really fascinating question because you might take it all the way back to the you know primordial days of humanity and think, how did our brains ever evolve to have all of these cognitive biases? I mean, why would we be attracted to conspiracy theories or anything that would get in the way of believing in the truth? One of the most interesting hypotheses that I've read is the idea that it's because belief is social, that that's what's selected for. Maybe the point is to have solidarity with the folks in your community. That is maybe even more important than having true beliefs, is to have beliefs that fit with the people who have got your back, the people who are on your team and your family, right? Your friends, your group, your community, who are going to protect you. So there is a certain social aspect to belief. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to believe false things. But one thing that's happened uh, in recent years is that we've become polarized uh, along many different lines, uh, some of which have to do with science. And once that's happening, once we've divided the world into us versus them, and we've pruned off people who disagree with us, and we're getting our news from information silos, then it's very easy to believe false things then those cognitive biases that we all have built into our heads allow us to see things differently because of the team that we're on. I'll I'll give you a dumb analogy. Think about your favorite sports team. You know, is your view of whether that was or wasn't a foul or, you know, something like that, does it depend at all on which team you're rooting for? I I think it does. I, I think that we are all subject to partisanship in our beliefs on certain things. Sports, I mean, that's a trivial example. But whether an election is stolen, that's not a trivial example. Science denial is about identity. People will tell you it's based on evidence. It's based on what they believe and don't believe based on whatever they think is true. It's not. It's based on solidarity with the people who believe what you believe. And that makes it doubly hard to convince them to give up their views. Because in a way, you're not just asking them to change their beliefs, you're asking them to change who they are. You're asking them to change who they trust. If everybody in your social group believes one thing and then you reject it, you're really giving up a lot. Think about people who are raised in a religion and then they split off from that religion. And then what are they left with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if forming beliefs is so closely tied to identity, how can we appeal to a shared sense of identity that's maybe not immediately obvious or a common sense of values to have these constructive conversations? You've put your finger on exactly how to do this. Science denial is not about lack of information. It's about lack of trust. So you have to think about how do human beings build trust between one another. And the best way that I know to build trust is through face-to-face conversation. Something about speaking to somebody face-to-face causes us to like them a little bit more, to be on our best behavior. You know, the worst possible way to try to get somebody to see your point of view is on Twitter or on the comment section on a uh, newspaper article. But when you're face-to-face, 
It's, it's just more humane. You do have to be on your best behavior, too. If you're going to do it, you have to be calm and respectful. You have to listen to what they have to say. And then they'll eventually ask you, what do you think? And, and then you can actually have a conversation with them. I was able to have conversations with flat earthers. I was able to get them to listen to me because I listened to them. I did not change anybody's mind. Nobody tore off their lanyard and left the conference. That's a pretty big ask, I think. By the time somebody's gone to a conference, they're fairly hardcore. Plus, they're surrounded by 649 other people who agree with them. That wasn't really what I was hoping to do, though it would have been nice. What I was instead hoping to do was to just learn how to talk to them. But I didn't want to talk about the evidence for Flat Earth. There isn't any. So those conversations were not going to go anywhere. Instead, I wanted to talk about how they were reasoning on the basis of the evidence. What was their logic? What was their strategy, their blueprint? And there, I felt I had an advantage. Yeah, tell us about that. You, you talk in the book repeatedly about the building blocks of science denial, and you have five buckets, you, you know, as you yeah. sort through this. So let's go over that. So there were some cognitive scientists years back who have put together this idea that all science denial is the same. It all relies on the same flawed blueprint, which goes like this. There are five tropes. First, cherry-picking evidence. Second, belief in conspiracy theories. Third, reliance on illogical reasoning. Fourth is reliance on fake experts and denigration of real experts. And fifth, is my favorite, is the idea that science has to be perfect. You'll often find science deniers say, well, you know, can you prove it? Is there 100% evidence that this vaccine is safe? But that's not how science works. And, you know, that's why it's part of the uh, flawed reasoning. So there's actually a study in Nature Human Behavior in the summer of 2019, which showed that you can use knowledge of those five tropes to convince science deniers. doesn't work every time, but the comparison between content rebuttal, which is when you know, you're an expert and maybe you're a climatologist and you talk to them about climate change, versus technique rebuttal which is when you can be a layperson, but you learn what these scripts look like so that you can say to somebody, well, look, you know, I think you're being inconsistent and, you know, you're accepting evidence here, or you're relying on a conspiracy theory here, but what makes you think that there is an actual conspiracy? Kind of push them in that way. Um, and th this is, I think, the way to do it. And of course, after I read this study, as a philosopher, I started to think, how far can we push this? Because the study was done online and it was done with people who seemed fairly naive about science denial. These were not your hardcore deniers. These were university students who were just hearing some of the disinformation for the first time. But I wanted to know, would it work for hardcore deniers? And could it work face to face? And so that's what I set out to do. Now, I went to the Flat Earth Convention before this study came out and maybe that's why I like the study so much, right? A little bit of confirmation bias in my own life here. But what they said there resonated with what I knew from my own experience, which is that you can make progress talking to people about their beliefs as long as you're not trying to cram facts down their throat. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting that, you know, one of the things you said in the book is that you should avoid facts in your conversations. And I thought, oh, that yeah. seems uh, totally counterintuitive. It really does. 
We're going to pause for a quick word about our sponsor for the show. But when we come back, Lee's going to give us a blueprint for having uncomfortable conversations with science deniers. He'll help us become activists for science with some really useful research-backed advice on how to talk about this stuff. I'm thinking a lot of us want to keep these strategies in our back pockets for the ultimate awkward conversation arena, the Thanksgiving table. But first, I wanted to talk to you about Inkle. If you're like me, keeping up with the news has become a real pain. All the best news sites are locked behind paywalls, and the free stuff is just clickbait and fake news that honestly no one should read. Now, imagine an app where you can get unlocked access to the reliable news sites. One that shows you every story from multiple perspectives to counter bias, of course, filters out fake news and clickbait, and where positive stories, meaning the actual good news, are highlighted so you don't become despondent. In fact, it's where journalists themselves dig through news from around the world to find stories you wouldn't normally see. That's what an innovative Australian startup called Inkle, I-N-K-L, has come up with. Inkle.com has signed partnerships with 100-plus news sources like The Economist, The Atlantic, and Bloomberg, and created a unique system combining journalists and algorithms to create a best-of-news feed. The service unlocks more than $12,000 worth of premium news for $100 a year. If you go now to inkle.com hopeful, they'll give you an additional 25% discount. So you can get a whole year's worth of headache-free news for just $75. That's inkl.com forward slash hopeful. I also want to tell you about the Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. He recently interviewed General Michael Hayden, retired U.S. Air Force General, former director of the NSA and CIA, and author of Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror. General Hayden gives a rare glimpse of working for two very different presidents and how important it is to adapt to their learning styles. Fascinating. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. More now with our guest, Lee McIntyre. Lee's a philosopher of science, and he's the author of How to Talk to a Science Denier. So in terms of your experience, you can change people's minds. You can change their beliefs. It works. Uh, and uh, doing it face-to-face -face is really hard. It seems like a tricky thing to pull off at scale. Mm -hmm. So yes. what do you say about that? Because, you know, if we're inundated, which we are, uh, with disinformation and misinformation everywhere in our information spheres, how can we make the most out of face-to-face -face interactions? I think that each of us have to do it. It's not scalable. I can't go out and talk to 100,000 COVID deniers. But I can write articles and write a book and do media where I try to convince other people to at least try to engage with the folks in their own lives who already trust them. 
I mean, that's the biggest barrier, isn't it? To build trust with somebody who doesn't trust you. So start with somebody who already trusts you. Start with your cousin or, or your uncle or your niece who's an anti-vaxxer. That's the person that you could be having the conversation with. And Mila, I go back here to your idea of the, the person that you spoke to, right? It was an uncomfortable conversation. I, I absolutely understand that. And you said, and what did you say? You didn't want to get into an argument. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think that's right. You don't want to get into an argument. But that doesn't mean that you need to stop talking about the beliefs. Because if you simply ask the person questions, that keeps the conversation going. And that allows you to help the person to recognize at a certain level when they're trying to explain it to you how uh, off their beliefs are. Imagine somebody who is trying to explain to you why they didn't trust the vaccines, but they did trust ivermectin. Let them explain that to you. That would be quite interesting. Keeping in your back pocket the trope of illogical reasoning. And one way of being illogical is to be inconsistent. So let them talk. And it's not that facts have no role in this. It's that facts only work if the person trusts you. You have to build trust first and use the facts judiciously. Use them in the nature of a question. That can work too. The main point is that you don't want the other person to feel threatened. You can't change their mind, but they can change their own mind if you raise enough doubts through your questions. Go out and look at the anecdotal literature. Google the stories of science deniers who have changed their minds. There's one famous one that I discuss in the book where there was a measles outbreak in Vancouver, Washington a few years back because there's heavy anti-vaxxer community there. And Governor Jay Inslee of Washington sent public health officials down there to talk with the anti-vaxxers, sometimes one-on-one. An amazing thing happened. It worked. Maybe they'd never met a scientist. There was one woman and she said, you know, I was just kind of amazed by this scientist. You know, he took out his whiteboard and he explained cell interaction for a a couple of hours. And he was really warm and I trusted him. And now I'm going to get my kid vaccinated. So this method works. Yes. Well, that's a great story. But I'm not a scientist and I can't explain how cells work. So um, (laughs) help us build our civic engagement toolkit here. Give us two tips on how to have these conversations of tackling science denial. So what that scientist was doing was content rebuttal. He was explaining cell interaction. Try technique rebuttal. That's my first piece of advice. You can get the the study from Nature Human Behavior. It's by uh, Cornelia Bache and Philip Schmid. And it's got scripts in there for what you can say depending on what the topic is. Is it climate denial? Is it evolution denial? Is it anti-vax? And it it can help you to figure out some of the things you might say. And I think the second piece of advice is this. Don't approach the conversation with the idea that the goal is to convert the person, because they will feel that. Approach the conversation as one where you're curious about why This person believes what they believe. And you don't have to pretend that you're indifferent. But what you do want to say is something like, I'm having trouble understanding how it is that you don't trust scientists to come up with a vaccine that's safe. 
but you do trust them when you get sick and you go to the hospital. I mean, people are going to the hospital now, unvaccinated people who have COVID, to ask for the monoclonal antibody treatment, which is also not studied long-term, the same as the, the vaccines. I mean, this is an experimental treatment, but they don't distrust that. Or some people heartbreakingly are asking for the vaccine and finding out that it's too late. So be curious about why do they believe what they believe? Make them explain it to you. And I think that sometimes you'll find that even they're dissatisfied with their ability to explain it. They're so used to being surrounded by people who don't challenge them that if you actually challenge them in a respectful, calm, friendly way, you might make some progress. Well, you mentioned something interesting just now about, you know, trusting the monoclonal treatment, but not trusting the vaccine. And we've been talking about our part of the social contract, our personal responsibility to engage with our fellow humans about these issues and to not just let disinformation hang out in the air unchallenged, face-to-face, -face, you know, when we're in conversation with people. But what is the state's role here? We're in contract with each other and also the state, but it's really hard to believe in the state right now. How can we trust government? Or can we trust government? <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Because the social contract is something, as you point out, that we have with one another, where if we care about one another, you know, we're we owe something to them because they owe something to us. But it also exists with the government. Looked at from, from a, a, a macro perspective, science denial is about more than the people who believe the disinformation. It's also about the people who create the disinformation and why they do so. And about the people who amplify it and why they do so. And those things that I just mentioned are not something that individual citizens can probably do very much about. It, it, it has been shown. There was a lot of media in March of this year. I didn't break into CIA headquarters to find this out. The Russian government is behind a lot of the disinformation about the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, as they've been about health questions in the West for you know decades. They do this for their own selfish interest to you know keep us in chaos and polarized and at one another's throat. Well, what can an ordinary citizen do about that? Well, we can wake up to the fact that we're in an information war with Russia and demand that our government officials do something about it. That has to be a governmental solution. But we can try to at least hold the government's uh, feet to the fire on that. Yeah. The second thing we can do is think about who amplifies this disinformation. It's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's YouTube, it's platforms that we all use. Are we putting the right pressure on our government officials to do something about regulating them? Are we even abandoning those platforms ourselves because we deplore the role that they're playing? What we can do is talk to science deniers, and that's why I wrote the book about it. What we can also do is put pressure on our government officials, vote, boycott, do whatever we need to do to make it clear that we want the creation and, and uh, amplification of disinformation to stop. But before any of that happens, we need to wake up. We're in an information war. Science denial is not an accident. It's a lie. Somebody creates disinformation because they profit by it, either economically or ideologically or politically. And until we realize that and we stop 
treating it as if it were a mistake. We're just going to continue to be stuck. Mm. I don't know when we will wake up that we are in an information war. Mm -hmm. uh, and let's assume we don't because we haven't yet. Mm -hmm. How can we live together? Yeah. Can there be a functioning social contract without a shared reality? Because uh, because right now we're living in different you know spheres and think that the yeah. world is totally different. The people who don't believe the same things yeah. experience the world in a totally different way. I wish I knew the answer to that question, but the stakes seem pretty high because the answer might be no, that we can't live together if we don't have a shared reality. Look at QAnon and how it has infiltrated the American population. I, I forget what the, the latest number on it is. Maybe you know the percentage of the you know the American public that believes the QAnon conspiracy is was last time I checked incredibly high. Yes, a poll released in August by the Public Religion Research Institute and the Interfaith Youth Corps found that 15% of Americans say they think that the levers of power are controlled by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles, which is a core belief of QAnon supporters. And the kicker is the same share, 15%, said it was true that American patriots may have to resort to violence to depose the pedophiles and restore the country's rightful order. I I thought it was 16%, uh, 15%. So there's my good news for the day. It's one percentage point lower. Look at the folks around Stop the Steal. Look at the people who think that the uh, folks who participated in the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol were peaceful protesters or that the ones who've gone to jail are political prisoners. This cannot last. I mean, if we don't have a shared reality, we will tear ourselves apart. And so I, I don't think that the social contract, I mean, it's going to sound dark, but I don't think that the social contract can survive if we don't have a shared view of reality. And that's why the stakes are so high. By the way, that's why the U.S. military sees this as a security threat. The uh, U.S. Cyber Institute, the U.S. Army at West Point just released a training manual called uh, Invisible Force, about how to get U.S. troops to fight an information war. I mean, they recognize the threat that lack of a shared reality is to United States security. Yes, it's definitely a threat to our national security. So I want to change track a little bit here. Um, I often ask this question, what's the source of your passion? But maybe today I should ask, why do you care? Because you've written in the book about how people don't appear to care. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one. That probably goes back to my childhood. My parents never went to college. I grew up in a rough neighborhood, but they believed very strongly in education. They wanted their kids to go to college. We had books in the house. And one of my favorite books was the World Book Encyclopedia. I, I loved the entries on science. I loved to read about the scientists. And it always seemed to me that I was born too late. It always seemed to me that, you know, all the real heroes who fought for science had already lived and died, you know, hundreds of years before. Gosh, it would have been easy to stand up for truth and reason if I'd been in Galileo's time. So that was kind of deeply embedded in me from the start. And why I got into philosophy and ended up in philosophy of science, because I love science. And I wanted to think about how science could make our lives better to have a more empirical way of thinking about human behavior, 
you know, not just to defend science from attacks, but to extend it more to the social sciences. That's what my doctoral dissertation was about, about a science of human behavior. So that idea of science, you know, everything that I'd read about the Enlightenment, uh, Renaissance, this was all based on science and logic and, and reason. This was how humanity made progress. So when this started to be threatened, th this really woke me up because, you know, as a philosopher, I felt I have a role here to play. And I started to do something that is now called public philosophy. I was doing it sort of before it had a name, since 2004, really, even before that. I was interested in the idea of taking on some of the problems of the world surrounding the issue of why we weren't reasoning correctly. And of course, the problem just got worse and worse over time. And as that happened, I got more and more committed to it. I, I could not conceive of walking away. I could not conceive of saying, I have no role in this, because it just seems to me so tragic that all of the things that humanity has built are under threat. You know, democracy, truth, reason. So the way you talk about this, it's clear you have a real love of science. And you say that the most special thing about science is its values and practices. Tell us a little bit more about that. My book just before How to Talk to a Science Denier was called The Scientific Attitude. And there I engaged in this age-old question about what's special about science. And the answer that I came up with was the scientific attitude, the idea that scientists care about evidence and they're willing to change their mind based on new evidence. That's why science doesn't offer proof or certainty, because they're always willing to change their mind. So scientists are both skeptical and open-minded. To have the humility to be able to say, I believe this to be true and I want it to be true, but nature says that it is not true. I have to change my belief. I think that's a noble thing. And I've always admired that. A lot of people admire that. But I think, like you said, sometimes with the way that we are attached to our identity, it's difficult to overcome, maybe especially for everyday well, people. It, it, you know, And it is for the following reason. Deniers don't think of themselves as deniers. They think of themselves as more scientific than the scientists, more skeptical than the scientists. So, I mean, there, there's room to, to educate them, right? They really don't understand how science works. And I'll go one better than that. Even some people who trust science don't understand how science works, which is one reason why I wrote The Scientific Attitude, to let people understand um, that uncertainty is not an embarrassment, that one of the most important things about science is that it is a community effort. Scientists check one another's work even if they trust the other scientists, they keep scientists honest, even if they were honest in the first place. And the reason they do that is because there is such a thing as individual bias. But by checking one another's work, they're making sure that everybody's being honest and we're learning from the data. Right. So looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Wow. That is, that is maybe the hardest question. <laughs> because... Every time I think it couldn't get any worse, someone drains a little more water out of the pool. 
but I have to remain optimistic. I mean, I've written a book and I'm out there talking to people and I'm committed to this. The thing that makes me hopeful is simply the fact that so many people care that truth is under threat. I think there's a big misunderstanding of what the term post-truth means. I I wrote an earlier book called Post-Truth. And some people, I think, almost willfully misunderstand what it means. Post-truth does not mean that truth doesn't matter anymore. It means that truth is under threat. Uh, I define post-truth as the political subordination of reality. And it's a danger because it means that, you know, that's what autocrats do. You know, that's what authoritarians do. They figure out that if they can control the narrative about truth, then they can control the population. So one thing that gives me hope is the idea that so many people are now concerned with the idea of truth and science and reason. I think that that energy will help us. If I can only convince them to take their commitment and to make positive, concrete steps with it. We cannot be deniers. We cannot deny that we could have a positive impact because we can. Don't just believe in science. Be an activist for science. The extent to which more people can do that gives me hope. The existence of the Alan Alda Center at Stony Brook, the University of Cincinnati Center for Public Engagement with Science. They're both devoted to public understanding of science, to training scientists and journalists and other people how to talk about science. That gives me hope. Oh, I like that. So did you ever figure out what was going on with the flat earthers? I know you kind of left abruptly and you were relieved to have departed. <laughs> so do you I, have I, like I was a relieved, you know, yes. revisit? Uh, did you keep in touch? Uh, what's the resolution, if there is one? I, I did not. I did not keep in touch. Some of them kept in touch with me, uh, but that was a little one way. I'm going to go back. And after the Flat Earth Convention, I wrote a piece for the American Journal of Physics called Calling All Physicists, in which I told the story about how at the Flat Earth Convention, they were gleeful about the fact that there were no physicists there to refute them. And they said, well, I heard that there was a conference of physicists just you know, in Denver, but they won't come over here because they're scared. Of course, I'm not asking physicists to get baited into a fight, but what I'm saying is that sometimes I do think you have to go to where they are. And one of the folks who responded to my plea was a fairly famous physicist named Bruce Sherwood, who had written with his wife a, a very important textbook on physics. And as a result of my correspondence with him, got interested in flat earth and has now created a computer model that shows the contradictions in flat earth based on their own assumptions. As soon as COVID is a thing of the past, uh, we're going to go to the next Flat Earth International Conference together. He'll do the content rebuttal, I'll do the technique rebuttal, and we're going to show people this model that he's created. If they'll let us uh, rent a booth, we'll rent a booth and begin to do this. Because I think you may say, why do I care about flat earthers? And I mean, in a way, I really don't. Who are they hurting? But they are hurting someone because they're creating a denialist culture. Has it really come to this? How much worse can it get? Flat earthers are the kind of science deniers that other science deniers make fun of. Can it really be that bad already? Mila, I have to say, it's a growing movement. 
they are radicalizing people on YouTube. One of the seminars at Flat Earth, there were two of the seminars were about how to recruit people into Flat Earth. I think 7% of the population in Brazil are believe in Flat Earth. It will not be that many years before they are running for school board and wanting us to quote-unquote teach the controversy in physics class in public schools, just as the anti-evolutionists did. This is a problem, and we do need to push back. Here's the other reason we need to push back. I think that science denial is the blueprint for post-truth. I think that Stop the Steal and the denial about the insurrection and QAnon are the same type of reasoning. Those five tropes, it's the same. And when you look at 50, 60 years of unchecked science denial and say, wow, look how successful they've been against pushing back against climate change, that emboldens people to say, well, you know what? If they can do that, I can lie about anything. And you know what? Trump did. He lied about how many people were at his inauguration in the path of a hurricane. He ultimately lied about the election. And that is the danger of letting this go in the wild and not pushing back against it. And you know what? COVID makes the stakes clear because we're dying now. Science deniers are killing us and they're putting our children at risk. Lee McIntyre is a philosopher and the author of the 2018 book, Post-Truth. His new book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, tries to figure out how we can have constructive dialogue with flat earthers, climate deniers, and others who defy reason. Lee, thank you so much for your time and for helping us to navigate the urgent and necessary conversations we should be having, but that we're all trying so often to avoid. Thank you so much for having me back on. I really enjoyed our conversation. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, we'll be talking about the social contract and jobs. An estimated 7 million people have disappeared from the workforce, the so-called great resignation. And while we've known for a long time that the social contract was being erased for many low-wage gig and temporary workers, it feels as though things have reached a tipping point. More and more people are walking out of these undesirable, underpaid jobs. So we're going to talk to Saru Jayaraman, president of One Fair Wage and director of the Food Labor Research Center at University of California, Berkeley. Her new book is One Fair Wage, Ending Sub-Minimum Pay in America. You've been working as many hours as all your fellow workers who are now getting benefits. You cannot get them because of the structure of pay in your industry. It was an epiphany for a lot of workers. A lot of workers in that moment had like a light bulb moment, like, wait a second, if the state is telling me I earn too little to qualify for benefits, probably I earn too little. And I should never have put up with my employer paying me two or $3 and expecting me to live off of tips. It was never right. This podcast was produced for Future Hindsight by Sarah Burningham, Reva Goldberg, Zoe Sullivan, and Bart Warshaw of the Cocoon Collective. Zach Travis is our associate producer. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.